Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode number 332. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel. He designed the show's logo, and he's online at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. Thanks to All About Jazz for carrying the show. They have a widget that you can put on your website, and if you do that, it will show the latest episode of the Jazz Session. If you decide to use that widget, please let me know because I'll mention you in my newsletter. Speaking of which, the newsletter now goes out every Thursday, and you can subscribe by going to thejazzsession.com and clicking on Mailing List up at the top. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane, D as in David. And finally, the show is member-supported, so if you like what you hear, please do become a member. It's uh, super easy, super cheap, and there's a little bit of a membership special going on right now. Uh, you can become a member for as little as 10 bucks a month, but if you join at w- either the middle or top level, the next two people who do that, either monthly or yearly, will get a copy of Anthony Wilson's DVD CD set, Seasons, which is really fantastic. So that's for the next two people who join at the middle or top level, either using the monthly or yearly payment plan. My guest today is Enoch Smith Jr. He's a piano player who got his start in the church, in the world of gospel music, and uh, has made a really fantastic album now called Misfits. I think you're going to like it. I really do. And before we hear my conversation with him, let's hear the opening track from Misfits. Bought myself a Coke and waited all day for you. To call or come around Those misfits They tear it up And put it down But they were nowhere To be found Misfit, misfit, misfit you will never fit in Nonconformist creature of peculiar inclination Misfit, misfit, misfit You will never fit in Nonconformist creature of peculiar inclination Misfit, misfit, misfit You will never fit in Nonconformist creature of peculiar inclination Misfit, misfit, misfit You will never fit in Creature of peculiar inclination
misfit, misfit, you. My guest is composer and pianist Enoch Smith Jr. The new album is called Misfits. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Jason. So uh, I really, really like this album. Uh, I think one of the things I, I like most about it is it seems to be completely lacking in pretension and totally full of joy. It just feels like really listening to you and who you are as a player. And I thought maybe you could talk just a little bit about how this particular record came to be, your second. Sure. Um, it's It's definitely a record that I feel is the essence of who I am and, and what I want to portray as a, an artist, as a creator. It's also, it's also really telling of the fact that I love songwriting. I love writing lyrics. I love songwriters. I love the, the vocalists of our tradition. And I think that at a, some point, the music has become too all-inclusive and a lot of times we'll do everything and neglect the fact that there were people who made their whole careers off of just writing great, great songs. So I wanted to take a uh, a leap into the arena of songwriting on the second album, which is why it's so heavily vocally influenced, while keeping a fresh sound. Um, it's not something I tried but I hear now that the record's out. Oh, it's such a fresh record. It's it's so fresh. And I'm, I'm saying to myself, well, maybe it's because I wasn't trying to do something that someone else has done. I just said, hey, we're going to write some music and I'm going to record it and we'll see what happens. Sure. Yeah, will you talk uh, a little bit about uh, the title and kind of the uh, this? I mean, the title refers pretty directly to your your origin story, your story of growing up as a musician. Right? Sure, sure. Misfits, man. It's. It's an amazing story. Um, I started off playing piano very late. I was about 14 years old when I started playing. And by the time I got to college, uh, Berkeley College of Music, it was, it was so overwhelming because I was there with, you know, musicians who had been studying since the age of four or five years old, who had been trained very you know very well and had gone to performing arts high school some of them even performing arts and middle schools and at the level that they were at it was very intimidating so misfits is kind of the the backdrop for my entire career from the beginning to now you know from the guy who was basically overlooked because he wasn't bloomed in, in or in full blossom at the right point so you get overlooked in one stage, but then you stick around for the next part. And they're like, man, what's that guy still doing there? And then, you know, the next part comes and they're like, man, he's still here. Oh, wait, did you hear his stuff? Oh, man. <laughs> and and that's kind of the story of, of my life, you know, not trying to fit in, but hanging around and people noticing that there's something different there. Of you here with me. 
the end of my day I'll be on my way Soon as I get home from work I'll be bringing it on home Can't wait to see your smiling face Daydreaming all the day long In my mind Nothing's more sweeter Than the prospect of you Here with me So at the now, am I right in remembering, you said you started piano uh, later than many people do, but you were playing drums I was, first off, yeah, right? Man. Because you can really feel that in your piano playing too. And just in the way, I mean, this album, besides being really vocally centered, is really centered in a, in just a deep groove and rhythmic sense all throughout. I mean, it never lets that go. That's, that's, that's the church, man. That's, I, I grew up, um, first playing drums in the, in the church and, my father uh, played guitar and my mom sang in the choir. And I mean, we spent a lot of our time in my early years, you know, driving back and forth to church weekly. And that's really where the foundation of, of all of this groove centered music came from. Um, in Rochester, where I grew up, the, the musicians there were very much focused on the groove and the feel of the music more so than the flash. So I didn't grow up around a lot of musicians who played a lot of quick lines and who were into bebop, so to speak. But growing up in church, man, I heard a lot of chords and a lot of really great changes, and it kind of just seeps into you, man. In terms of your own evolution, when you when you got to Berkeley, did you feel the need to try to add some of those things into your playing, even though maybe those those oh. kind of flash elements hadn't been there in the beginning? Definitely, man. I mean... There's this whole argument about, you know, the institu- institutionalization, if I said that right. Of, uh, Sounded right to me. Of, uh, <laughs> of jazz, man, and, and trying to teach it in, you know, the academia. And it's, it's an amazing concept because you can take someone who is basically, you know, outside of the box and would have no exposure to this culture and you can say, well, read this book and then come to this class and I'm going to show you how, how to put this together. So from that side, um, it was great because I got to see the inner workings of the music and, and how it's put together from the study of the masters. You can't, you know, you can't put a price on that type of knowledge. The fact that someone took the time to compile it and create a program is amazing, but on the other end of that, then you've got a bunch of clones that maybe by no fault of their own, but just by going through the machine, you know, you be, you become a clone. And, and I remember graduating and going places and hearing people talk about the Berkeley sound and not in a flattering way. Right. You know, <laughs> so it sounds like Berkeley, you know, and it's the kind of that over polished, uh, you know, super produced, glossy, you know, sound. And I'm thankfully, I didn't come out with that sheen, but I definitely, uh, I saw the value of what it was. And, uh, and definitely correct me if I'm wrong here, but it, it sounds to me from listening to you play like, uh, I can imagine that coming out of a school like that, that part of what you have to do afterward, if you're going to find who you are as a musician is figure out what to leave behind from sure. what you were just oh, learning, sure. how to get back to yourself too. Is that right? Oh, sure, man. Oh, that's, that's, that's such a funny 
uh, thing that you said that because I can remember changing the way that I listened to music from before I, I got to Berkeley and before I learned all of the theory and the harmony and all the analytical side of the of this music and I would listen to it and then just enjoy it and say, man, this record sounds great. And, and you're just grooving with it. And then the next thing you know, you're like, two, five, one, flat seven. <laughs> oh man, that, that flat nine run was ridiculous. And, and the next thing you, you're not listening to the music, but you're sitting there and you're picking it apart. And while it's a great skill to have, it takes away from the enjoyment, which is the reason why we all play music in the first place. So the process of getting back to that place was, very tough and it took many many years uh, outside of school and I actually got into producing um, hip-hop records for a while which was a great uh, escape from the jazz realm just yeah. because in, in the hip-hop world no one speaks the language they don't get it you know I could play a progression and the the producer I worked with would say hey man that's too jazzy and I, I know he has no idea what that really means, but I'm trying to connect with him. And what he's saying is it's, it's too complex, you know, keep it simple. So through allowing myself to, to kind of morph into what the producers that I would work with wanted me to be, I got back to the simpler side of myself. Sure. And, you know, then when you bring it back, you know, to a kind of full, a full circle situation, it's like, man, you've, you've got the ability to be simple yet complex or build the com the complex out of the, out of the simplicity. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I'm not sure if I've ever told this little anecdote on the show before, but my, my first career was I was a saxophone player and I played mostly salsa and Latin jazz in the Southwest. And, uh, I remember the second or third night of my first gig with the, my first band, the, one of the percussionists pulled me aside and said, you know, I can hear that you, know a lot of licks and you can play fast but remember that we're playing for dancers and they didn't come here to hear your bebop licks the reason that you're here is first of all to play the melody sometimes and then also just to play solos that help them dance better and <laughs> wow. i totally like in that night it changed the way that i played and I, forever after i i always remembered okay well there's a diff there are different things you can be serving through your playing and it sounds very much i wonder if maybe the fact that you're still involved in playing in the church uh, if that helps you kind of get back to that place and, and remember that there are other things you can be doing with the music besides. Oh, sure. I mean, dazzling technique. <laughs> the, 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 the best part of, of being connected still with the church and, and church music is that the center of, of church music is really centered on finding a spiritual focus. And if you, you think about the things that we do to focus, a lot of times they're monotonous. They're simplistic. They're things that are easily attained because it's not about the thing. It's about centering your mind. So it it just transcends into the music. Sure. If you look at a meditative practice or whatever it might oh, be, yeah, sure. that's like the simplest of all things in one sense and the hardest it, in another. Exactly. <laughs> so if you if you look at the the title track, a misfits theme, you know, I took this whole concept of the misfit and how I felt and how crazy it was being on the outside and then eventually embracing it and saying, you know what? I like being on the outside and I've grown comfortable here. And I took that and, and I thought about being on the playground and how the kids would say, you know, na 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 boo boo da. and it's misfit, misfit, misfit. You know? And it became this mantra. And I said, wow, well, what if people who felt 
left out or who felt like they were outsiders had their own kind of manifesto, their own kind of uh, song of pride or, or something that they could, you know, say, you know what, it's okay that I'm not like you. And whether you like that or not, I'm still going to be fine. And I'm still going to grow. And you know what I mean? It's not the end of the world. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's really where the church comes in because everything is based on the focus and all the music, all, most of the tracks are focused around us, a real tonal or rhythmic center. And we don't deviate too far because like you said, with the playing in the, in the Latin band and the salsa stuff, it's like, you know, I could listen to you do acrobatics all day. But is that going to make me feel good about the music? Is it going to make me feel good about myself? You know, there, music has a, a healing quality. And playing in the church, you get really close to that. And it transcends. And I'm thankful for it, for the opportunity. some hills to climb I've had some weary days and some sleepless nights but when I look around and think things over all of my good days outweigh my bad days and I won't complain I can hardly see the roads I ask question, Lord Why so much pain But he knows what's best for me Although my weary eyes can't see So I'll just say thank you, Lord You know, it's interesting that an album like Misfits, which... Um, as you said in the beginning is really uh, an album of songs and even the instrumental pieces are really very song-like but it's an album of vocals an album of of deep groove it's interesting that in many ways that is now the the thing that's outside the norm in the jazz world you know where where, (laughs) before it might have been really angular melodies and that kind of thing that that put you out outside the norm and now what you've done is outside the norm (laughs) I, I, i think it's funny because we've kind of um We've we've run ourselves around in a circle, so to speak. In the beginning, I can remember a lot of um, m- musicians that I would meet talking about it feeling good and and you know the finding the right tempo for a specific piece where you know where a tune felt good. And the more I got into academia, the less it was about that, and the more it was about how many licks you could play in. And how many different, you know, ways you could do Cherokee or whatever the, the, the flavor of the month tune was. And when people would find a groove in any setting, that was the really the most exciting part of the music, regardless of all the stuff that they said they were going to put into this tune. When it started to groove, that's when you get the woo 
Ooh, and, uh, and that's when the feeling comes, you know, and, and until you get the groove, everything else has no place. It's like, you know, it's like painting on a palette, but, you know, you're not using any colors. You're just kind of throwing everything up there instead of saying, you know what, the reason that this sounds good is because we set a foundation, which is the groove. Without the groove, you don't understand what anything else is. Will you talk to me about uh, the songs? Uh, this is an album that's split not evenly. It's more of your own compositions, but there are some other people's compositions. Uh, but will you talk to me about kind of putting together the repertoire for this album, and particularly your own writing? Sure. I mean, we recorded a lot more tracks than, you know, actually made the record. And it felt good. It was a departure from my first record where I felt like, you know, I've been doing this music um, kind of in the shadows or, you know, to myself and not really conf- been confident about putting it out. And I said, I've got to make a statement. I've got to put a record out. So I said, you know, I'm going to write songs and then I'm going to record them and I'm going to put them out and that's going to be that. And I'm not going to look back. Right. So the first record was kind of this, you know, in my mind, this reckless abandon, like everything I write's going on there. I'm, I'm hiring some cats to come in. We're going to play it down. It's going to be great. We didn't really rehearse a lot and we just kind of got in and did it. Sure. And with this record, it was so much more organic. You know, um, I was in a different place in, in my family life, much more stable. Um, I was really able to sit with music for months and months and months. And a lot of the songs started as other things and they just morphed naturally. And it came from such a, uh, an organic, uh, such a natural process. And that's why I think the record feels the way it does. It's almost like um, your favorite record that you put it on from the beginning and you can listen to it all the way through. You know, people don't make records like that anymore. Can you? Is there a concrete example of, of a piece on here that started as something else and became one of the songs on this record that you can think of? Well, um, the, um, da, 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 the Misfits theme, it started off as just the chant, you know, and it was literally, and I'm like, I can't say nanny, nanny, on a record. I got to come up with something. And I said, misfit, misfit, misfit. And I looked up the definition, you know, it said, you know, it's a nonconformist creature. And that struck me, you know, because it's, it's not, you know, it's not negative. It's actually positive. It's saying, man, I'm, I'm doing my own thing. And then it says a pe- peculiar inclination. So when I put that together, nonconformist creature, a peculiar, I said, that's it. That's it. <laughs> so, you know, I sat with that for a minute. Misfit, 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 you will never fit in. Nonconformist creature of peculiar inclination. Misfit, 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 you will never fit in. Nonconformist creature of peculiar inclination. Misfit, 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 you will never fit in. Nonconformist creature of peculiar inclination. Misfit, 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 you will never fit in. I said, you know, that's a really cool chant, but I'm a storyteller, you know, at heart. And part of, you know, growing up in the church, you listen to people who are ad-libbing on songs and the tradition of this music. 
they were passing the story on for the next generation. A lot of stuff wasn't even written down. It just came, you know, through the song. So I said, you know, how can I set this up? And uh, it just popped in my head. Bought myself a Coke and waited all day for you to call or come around. And I'm seeing this person kind of going through their regular process and they're waiting, you know, for anticipating this call from this person or for somebody to stop by. And, you know, it, it just, it's like a, a, a timeline, so to speak. And then as the theme comes back the second time, it's the story progressing. It's like you're sitting there waiting and you, ha you see the guy's landlord. And she's like, man, if you see him, let me know because he owes me some rent money. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and the story kind of connects it all. I think about artists, great artists like, uh, like D'Angelo, who made really great classic soul records. I mean, I know it's R&B, but to me it's all soul. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And they were able to convey whatever that message was through the entire body. It was almost like one body of work. Another great artist I think of is Prince. And I remember getting a disc uh, from him. And I believe um, the the record on there that really struck me is called When Two Are In Love. Oh, yeah. But what really killed me about the entire CD, these CDs were fairly new at this point, that it was one track. The entire record was one track. So if you wanted to listen to that song that you loved, it was like smack dab in the middle. You had to fast forward. You had to mark the times. And I said, man, this is either really dumb or really ingenious, you know? Yeah. But the fact that that record became one of my favorite records and I could listen to it straight through, I said to myself, when I create, I want to give the listener an experience. I don't want it to be about me. Critics are going to be critics. You know, they're going to feel how they feel about it. They're going to look for what they look for. But when, the regular person who doesn't necessarily even listen to jazz puts this record on. I want them to be able to identify with something. Mm. I want this to be popular music again, not this, you know, artsy fartsy thing that it, it's too cool for itself. And in my estimation, that's what it's become.
this uh, this record really feels to me it, it kind of hangs together like a concept album, which I think makes it even more challenging to then go outside your own compositions and find other people's music that you're willing to bring in to that concept. So I'd be interested in hearing how you chose the songs on here that you didn't write. Sure. Um, Caravan, I chose uh, because, well, I think if you're going to do standards, there are certain writers and certain <laughs> repertoires that are just, you know, epitomize the standard. And you talk about a, a, a tune like Caravan that was made famous by Duke Ellington. If I was going to do any standard, I wanted it to be something that I could resonate with. And, um, you know, a black man that was making his way in the world with a band that he was paying, whether they were working or not, that's a misfit, man. And, you know, this guy was trying to, to, to change the status quo. And I, I said to myself, you know, this really ties in, but I don't want to do a standard for the sake of doing a standard. I want it to be. Enoch's version of Caravan, Enoch's rendition of it. Not that I wanted to be so focused on myself, but I want people when they hear my music to know that it's coming from somewhere that's thoughtful. just regurgitating something that's already been done so i i tried to pick music uh, like caravan and um love is stronger than pride the uh, amazing tune that's been made famous by sade uh that record man it's it's a record that i have of course grown up listening to we've all heard it and it's a standard you know it may not be a jazz standard but if you put it on right now you know most people that hear it in the room will say yeah I love that record. It, right. it feels good. It makes me feel good. And we've gotten away as jazz musicians from making the people feel good. It was like we make ourselves feel good first. Oh, I feel good. I hope you enjoyed that because that's, you know, <laughs> that's what you're getting. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it in certain settings. Um, also Blackbird. I'm in love with, uh, with the Beatles. I, I mean, I really, really love the Beatles. I remember being in fourth grade. And I went to um, a suburban school in Rochester, and I was probably the only black kid in the class. And there was a show and tell day, and this this white kid, you know, brought his Beatles anthology collection. And I'm like, who the hell are the Beatles? You know, like, who are these guys? And I remember hearing the songs, uh, Penny Lane and Sgt. Pepper, and I'm just like, man, this is different. But this is really great. And, and even the way that they recorded their records, it was different. Um. So Blackbird, uh, the, the lyric just resonated with me for this record. Blackbird singing in the dead of night, take these broken wings and learn to fly. 
it, you know, it, it really touched on the heart of what I want people to get from the record, which is, I want you to be lifted. I want, I want you to feel inspired by the music. And it feels also, I think, like a total misfit lyric. I mean, it kind of oh, carries sure. through this theme. Oh, sure. I mean, I didn't want it to be too derived, but I did want it to flow. Yeah. So all the music, you know, it's, in my estimation, I don't look at it, the tracks, the takes that we used as perfect by any means. And I, I want to make sure that they weren't hmm. just to prove a point. You know, I've, some of my favorite records, uh, Aretha Franklin's original record on Atlantic, you know, her voice is distorting all over the place when she's singing Drown in My Own Tears. But when it distorts, you're like, ooh, she's digging in and you feel, you know, what she's, what she's doing that much more. And, you know, in my mind, I feel like it's a throwback, but it's, but it's a, a new take on, on, on the old, so to speak. Well, you talk about uh, where and how you left room for improvisation and things you might more traditionally associate with being a jazz musician on this record. Sure. Um, putting a, together a record that's a little bit left of what we now consider mainstream for jazz, uh, I wanted to be true to a few things that I felt would help to make the record acceptable and so that other people would get a chance to hear it because if you if you're making art and people don't you know aren't exposed to it then what's the point you know so i um i wanted to make sure that we kept the instrumentation you know standard i played piano i didn't want to play roads i didn't want to play anything electric i didn't want any crazy uh outer space sounds not that i'm against that but for this setting i wanted to say you know what we can take the traditional instruments and create a vibe that will just take you on a journey. You know, the 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 bassist uh, Noah Jackson, man, a great bassist, studied with uh, with Rodney Whitaker out in Detroit. And I remember when I met him, you know, I heard him playing uh, in Smalls Jazz Club, and he was just amazing. And I said, "Do you play electric?" And he's like, "Yeah, I play electric." And 
after that conversation, I don't think we ever talked about the electric face again. <laughs> and it was amazing because in my mind, at first I'm like, you know, it'd be great to have someone who can kind of switch and do some different things. But the traditional instrumentation, it's so essential when you're trying to make a record that is carrying the tradition on, but still pushing forward. And I think as, uh, not to interrupt, this but maybe just to add something in there sure. i mean when i when i listen when i listen back to a lot of the hip-hop that i love and that i listened to when i was young i mean you you know i'm mean, like classic examples of low-end theory has ron carter on it but i mean you know all the samples that they used back in those days were were samples of actual drummers acoustic drummers and then if you come back a little closer to the present day with a band like the roots which really returned the idea of hip-hop to being played by a band playing sure. instruments and how fantastic it sounds i mean i remember the first time i went to a root show and there's just nothing like a guy actually like unloading on the drum set up in front of you, you can't, i don't care how great your turntables are right and how good a speaker system i mean when when Questlove lets it go oh, that's amazing it. and the the thing that's amazing about it it brings you back to a real place you know when you see people doing amazing things in front of you it's different than hearing it on a record. You know, that's why it's so important to support live music because, um, you know, working in, in, in hip hop production, you know, you're, you're, you're using drum machines and you're doing stuff that most drummers, unless they're amazingly talented and have studied for long years, would not physically be able to do, <laughs> whether it's just weird rhythmically or the tempo is just ridiculously fast. But, I've seen some pretty amazing things from drummers um, over the years. And the fact that, you know, someone like Quest Love can, can keep that alive. And you got Chris Dave is another mm -hmm. just superb drummer. And I remember listening to him play with Mint Condition and the idea of a band recording a record. You know, I feel like as a black uh, musician, we get pigeonholed. A lot of times because we feel like, all right, well, if I'm a musician, I have to, I have to play jazz because that's the only places where bands flourish and black music is jazz. How many black R&B bands do you know? But if you go on the other side of the spectrum, it's the norm. You know, you look at all these different genres of music, whether it's country or rock, it's, it's very normal for there to be a band with a lead singer who may play guitar or piano or whatever, but that's what people like. They come to the shows to see the band. You know, I remember wa watching um, uh, Jay-Z uh, when he was doing the Black Album. He was at Madison Square Garden. And I said to myself, it, it must be very hard to entertain just standing flat-footed right. <laughs> by yourself. You know what I mean? Yeah. In this huge arena. And I said to myself, you know, it would be amazing if we could bring the band back. And make it cool again yeah. to, to be in the band. That seems like a perfect segue to talk about your band. Tell me who's on this record with you. Great, man. Um, on the drums from Seoul, Korea, Mr. Sangmin Lee. This guy, um, I thought it was so cool uh, when I was trying to find a drummer that a, a bassist friend of mine recommended him. And he said to me, you know, I've got this drummer who'd be great for, the, for your next project that you're working on. Only problem is um, he's on tour. I'm like, oh, it's no big deal. He's like, no, he tours with this Korean pop star. I'm like, oh, he's on tour in Korea. Okay. <laughs> so I waited almost a year 
for this guy to come back. I'd never met him, never heard him play, but incidentally, we were both at Berkeley at the same time. So wow. <laughs> it, it, it was, it was odd. Um, so, um, Sung Min's on drums and, and, uh, he's, he's a really amazing drummer. He has a really good sense of feel and of where the music is going. It's, it's really refreshing when you have a drummer that's also a musician. I feel the same way about vocalists. I'll get better in a second. Right. But, but when you have a drummer who's not concerned so much with drum fills, but with painting a landscape and, and leading the band, uh, it's important. And, uh, he does that so well. On the bass, uh, we talked about Noah Jackson from Detroit. Amazing, amazing young bassist. Uh, I met him. Uh, he was fresh here in New York and he had just finished undergrad and he was, uh, at Manhattan school starting his, his graduate degree. And I remember thinking to myself, like, you know, this guy's a bit younger than me, but I think it would be great to have something of a relationship with, with the, with the band instead of the hired gun thing that has become so much the norm. And I feel like, a few guys are, are really in the past five or six years have been getting away from that and using a group and you know we are heroes man you know they played in bands you know they played in groups together they they rehearsed the the hell out of to- of songs until right. it was right and the reason why it's so amazing is not because they just got up one day and said hey i'm gonna call some random guys and play they knew each other they had relationships so with that um i want to talk about sarah charles who is uh, an amazingly gifted vocalist that I I have no doubt that the world will definitely know who she is soon. Um, I heard her singing or scatting. Actually, the first time I heard her singing, <laughs> she was scatting over a over a bebop tune, and I was just so enthralled with her phrasing and the way uh, she approached the the rhythm of the tunes, you know, she just had a very fresh take on it and she sang like a musician. Uh, I always tell my friends, um, you know, I don't like vocalists, you know, and they're like, what do you mean you don't like vocalists? Well, you know, I've had some bad experiences with, with singers and bands, you know, and you know, you've heard the stories about being a prima donna and being very, uh, needy, but with Sarah, it's amazing. She, in a sense, I mean, she's gorgeous, but she's like one of the guys. And I can bounce ideas off of her the same way I would bounce them off uh, Songman on drums or, or Noah. And she's got great ideas of her own, and she brings so much to the music. Uh, I think it's I think it's wonderful, and I'm, I'm really grateful to have that unit together. And I'm excited to see what we're going to do next. And then you've got uh, a couple of guests of varying ages uh, yeah. on, on this record as oh, well. Yeah. Tell us about them. <laughs> oh, man. Um, I want to start with uh, with uh, Mr. Saunders Sermons, who is a, a very gifted trombonist. And I, I think he was more known for his trombone playing uh, at the time that I called him for this record date. He would, had just finished uh, a tour with Maxwell. And he was uh, on that Grammy-winning record. And if you listen to some of the horn stuff that's going on there, it's it's really sick. Yeah. 
Um, especially for an R&B record. I've always loved Maxwell for using live bands. Um, but, you know, I called Saunders and I'm like, Saunders, man, I've heard you sing. And, and brother, I've got some stuff and I want to, I want to lay it on you. And, you know, he's a, he's a busy guy. So he's, you know, he's like, yeah, yeah, you know, send me the music. And I sent him the music and time went, went on and the session got closer and I was getting a little nervous. So I called him. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm good for it. I'm good for it. So we got in and we did the records. And it was the easiest, easiest recording session vocally that I could even remember. He was just so great and so professional. Um, the, the next vocalist uh, I'll talk about is Mavis Poole. Mavis is a, is a wonder. She's an enigma. She's got this this kind of gospel hewn soulful thing going on but it's it's got a this touch of class to it and i i picked one actual gospel record for this uh cd it's called i won't complain and the one thing and i don't know that it's different in any other genre of music but when you're doing things and you want them to be authentic you kind of have to go with someone that you know has an authentic experience in that department. And I knew she's a, she's a church girl at heart. And I, I told her the song. I didn't have to give her lyrics. I didn't have to give her a lead sheet. I said, Mavis, we're going to do I Won't Go Playing. And she's like, oh, oh yeah, that's cool. <laughs> and, you know, we just started playing it. And it didn't sound like, you know, the traditional record. It's been, you know, we arranged it differently. But the essence of what she was doing, it was the record. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that was really cool. And of course, on the, on the, the last track, All Right, I've got my eight-year-old daughter, Simone, who is uh, really the inspiration for a lot of my music in general. When we <clears throat> recorded All Right, she was so excited to be in the studio with Dad. She's grown up, you know, being a, a, a musician's kid rehearsals whether it's a church rehearsal or a band rehearsal and it's just in her in her genes so to speak when the morning comes alright alright it's gonna be alright just keep holding on alright alright it's gonna be great to have her and do a duet with her 
on the record. Um, Hush is a song that was actually written and inspired by an experience I had when Simone and I were um, living in Brooklyn, in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and times were really, really tough. I had, I had lost uh, employment, and we were scraping, literally scraping money together for food, and we were renting a room in, in this rooming house, and, um, you know, there was drugs everywhere. I mean, you think about the worst situation you could be in, and that was pretty much about it. And I remember, you know, thinking to myself, like, you know, we've got to figure out a way to get out of here. And the music was was a real escape. So she inspired me to to really create music that touched people. Um, did I get all the vocalists? I think that's everybody. Yeah, yeah. If my memory serves. Yeah. There's also a tune on here that uh, speaks about Ellis Marsalis. Will you say something about that? Oh yeah, yeah, wise man. That that tune came about. Uh, it's funny how. When I finish one record, by the time I'm promoting and, and, and pushing it, the new, the next record's already kind of seeping in. And that's kind of what happened. I finished um, Church Boy, and I still had the, the band from the first record. I was playing with them a lot. And I said, I want to lay something on you guys. And that, you know, it was a seven-piece band. We had trumpet and sax. And so, you know, I had this groove and we were working with it and it had, it had this New Orleans feel to it. And for a while it was just this instrumental groove that we were working on. And then when I transitioned and started working on the Misfits, you know, I, that was one of the songs that kind of developed. And Ellis Marsalis, uh, his, his music is amazing, but more so the legacy of the Marsalis family. And it's it's such a rich, rich legacy. And when you think about uh, Mr. Marsalis Sr. and what he had to endure in order to make sure that he instilled this legacy in his children, it you know it's really inspiring. And I'm sure that he made a lot of mistakes along the way. But that's how you get wisdom. So that song is dedicated to him as being, you know, a very, very wise gentleman. And the lyric came, you know, much, much later. But it flowed so naturally. I'll just mention for the listeners that Ellis has been on this show. So if they go in the archives, they can find that interview. Uh, can you tell folks um, about the, the the church side of your music now and, and where you're doing that? I know you're at two churches these days, right? Sure. Yeah, I, I live in, in New Jersey and I play at a church in Patterson, New Jersey. It's called Calvary Baptist Church. I'm the music director there. I've been there for about three years now. And it's great. It's a um, an older church. So they have a pipe organ. Oh, cool. So I get to play pipe organ uh, every Sunday. And then uh, after that service is over, I jump in my car and I go over the GWB and I, to Washington Heights. And I play at the United Palace Cathedral. And it's uh, formerly Reverend Ike's church. It was a huge uh, televangelist back in the 70s. Uh, it's this huge um, renovated movie theater. And uh, the music there is a bit more contemporary. It's it's a younger crowd. The pastor's about 40 years old. And I get to explore kind of the whole spectrum of gospel in that sense. And it's, and it's great. 
That's great. And uh, are there upcoming performances uh, of either the Misfits Band or other projects you're involved in that you want to mention, folks? Well, we'll be at the garage in February. Uh, we'll, we'll start our monthly uh, dates at the garage in February going through March. I don't have the dates in, in front of me at the moment, but it'll be in Hot House and, of course, sure. on the website. Absolutely. And you'll be able to go there and, and check it out. Great. My guest is Enoch Smith Jr. His new album is called Misfits, and uh, I highly recommend it. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time to do it. Thanks for having me on, Jason. It's been great. Enoch Smith Jr. from his album Misfits. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, Manat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. Please do become a member if you like the show. It's very easy. You can do it at thejazzsession.com slash join. And what else? Not nothing really. Is it 2012 now? Almost? It's getting close. It's crazy. I can't believe how close we are to another year in... Uh, March, I think, of 2012. Maybe it's February. The Jazz Session will hit its five-year anniversary, which is very exciting. About a million and a half downloads so far, so thanks to everyone who's making that possible. And now, if you would, please turn off all this electronic stuff and get out there and support real live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.
for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.